Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Why don't we begin in prayer? Through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy on us and save us. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy on us and save us. Amen. Uh, our program tonight, as we now turn our attention again to the nature of the church, I hope you learned a few things last week. You probably, a lot of the things I said, you said, oh yeah, I knew that. But the question is putting it in the right order so that we can understand these things properly in their proper context. I will warn you that my pages, for those in the front row, will appreciate what my notes look like tonight. Not very helpful to me. So if I stumble or I stall, please uh, be understanding about that. I also will be hopefully not quoting to death but our subject is so important and also so, dare I say, dangerous because people are so on edge about the topic itself. Someone has a spouse or a friend or a family member who is not a Catholic and they become offended by the very thought of outside the church there is no salvation. We should never become offended by what the church teaches because these, this is the revelation of the will of God himself. No, it's our duty to understand that will and that revelation. And when we're patient, we will always come to understand in the doctrines of the church the love of God. You all came tonight, hopefully not offended. I feel bad for those that didn't come, but a big important part of my job tonight is to get recorded some difficult things and also some answers about what the church teaches so that those that are not with us tonight can also listen online. So I ask for your uh, patience with my quotations also. We went through last week at the beginning a couple of important terms, salvation, justification, what else? Sanctification, okay, grace. And all of these terms, from a Catholic perspective, point to one thing. There are different sides of the same coin. Different ways of looking at the same mystery. And I asked you, I asked you a couple of questions last week. I'm going to do the same thing this week because I don't want you to fall asleep or just be thinking that I'm just giving you all the answers. I want you to start thinking about these things. What is that element that all of these things from a Catholic perspective have in common? They're Okay, God-given. Say it again. The life of God, yes. Please do not become caught up in difficult terms. The life of God. 
And why does our salvation consist in the life of God? Thank you. God's life is eternal. Simple as that. And upon that, volumes and volumes and libraries have been filled with insights. But we never want to lose that foundation, that understanding. That there is the answer to the problem of mankind. Salvation is a matter of being saved from those or from the state of not having the life of God. Huh? From that and towards having the life of God within you. And if you have eternal life in you, you will live forever. Justification. Being properly ordered. Or say, put together rightly. Refashioned. In the image and likeness of God. And what is that component which is the problem? The missing component that makes us not justified is a lack of the life of God. Sanctification, the making holy of someone, is simply the building up in them of the life of God. And what is grace? What does the word grace mean? It means gift. What gift? The life of God. Simple as that. And I want to make it that simple because long definitions and so forth they get lost in these things. But we always have to realize the fundamental importance of God's love for us. God wants to share His life with us. Period. That's what the church is about. That's what salvation is about. That's what the sacraments are about. The sharing of God's life with us. Cardinal Journet, who I'm going to be quoting quite extensively tonight, says, salvation is a matter of being incorporated into Christ. Incorporated into Christ. The catechism, grace is participation in the life of God. Justification is the change in a soul which passes from the state of sin to that of sanctifying grace or the life of God. Donald Atwater. All different sides of the same coin. And that coin is eternal life. I began last week with a quotation from Cardinal Charles Journet, and I will begin again and I will end with it tonight also. The necessity of membership in Christ and in His church, as Scripture has revealed, is a unique and simple mystery, but so profound that we can know it only by a series of complementary propositions compelling the mind of the believer to go beyond into the silent glance of faith. For those who do not advance so far, who separate the church and the body of Christ, membership in the church and membership in Christ, or still more, who consider the church according to the pattern of purely human societies, the axiom, no salvation outside the church, immediately loses its light. It can only be a slogan seized by fanatics of both extremes in order to make it rigid or to renounce it altogether. Complementary propositions. Proposition 1. There is no salvation outside of the life of God. I say that to non-Catholics and more importantly, I say it to Catholics. 
Do not go seeking salvation outside of God Himself. And everything you do as a Catholic must be oriented in that direction. Proposition 2. Jesus Christ is God. And therefore, there is no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven which is given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone is the mediator between God and man. Salvation, then, becomes a matter of participating in Christ's life. And this brings us to, what, our third proposition? There's no salvation outside of baptism. And I want to be very clear of what I mean by that. I mean baptism in its proper sense, or in its wider sense. Meaning, you must be plunged, entered, to baptize means to plunge in Greek. You must be plunged into Christ. That, as we all know, can take place in various forms. Its proper form is through baptism by water in the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, you must be entered into Christ. Further, baptism does not join us individually individually to the church. Cardinal Journey says this, One must call to mind the mystery according to which each member of the faithful exists in the church and therefore in and therefore in Jesus Christ, not as a separate whole. Not as a separate whole. And this is one of the points that's absolutely fundamental to understand Catholic ecclesiology. But as a member of a unique people. In other words, your entrance into Christ does not put you simply in a one-to-one relationship with Christ, but within a body within a corporate whole. And therefore, it puts you into relationship with each other. And that relationship is the incarnation of the church, which St. Paul calls the body of Christ. And our fourth proposition, which we concluded with last time, and I guess we can kind of begin with tonight, is that there is no salvation outside of the church. Because when you are baptized into Christ, you are baptized into His body. And the body of Christ, as St. Paul says, and I quoted last time, is the church. There is no salvation outside of the church. I concluded last time with a quote from the Shepherd of Hermas written around the middle of the 2nd century, While I slept, brethren, a revelation was made to me by a very handsome young man who said, Who do you think this old woman is from whom you received the little book? I said, The Sibyl. You are wrong, he said. She is not. Who is she, then, I said. The church, he replied. So I said to him, Why then is she old? Because, he says, she was created the first of all things. That is why she is old. It was for her sake that the world was established. This is absolutely 
fundamental to our understanding of the church because I don't want you, you must rid it from your thought, that the church is an invention or a band-aid. I said last time, the church is not plastic. It's not made of stone. It's not a creation of man. It is the intention of God for the salvation of His people from the very beginning. The Catechism of the Catholic Church says, the word church, or Latin ecclesia from the Greek, eklain, to call out, means a convocation or an assembly. It designates the assemblies of the people, usually for a religious purpose. Ecclesia is used frequently in the Greek Old Testament for the assembly of the chosen people before God. Above all, for their assembly on Mount Sinai, where Israel received the law and was established by God as His holy people, or the assembly of the Lord. By calling itself church, the first community of Christian believers recognized itself as heir to that assembly. In the church, God is calling together His people from all ends of the earth. The equivalent Greek term kyriake, from which the English word church and the German kirke are derived, means what belongs to the Lord. It puts us in a larger context from which we're able to see the church and its purpose. And so I want to reflect very quickly back to Genesis chapter 1. And you can turn there if you like. Genesis chapter 1. On the sixth day of the week, God created man. Chapter 1, verse 26. You'll see that text of the creation of man. St. John Chrysostom says that all things were created for man. Using that principle that the last thing in execution is always first in intention. Man is the culmination of creation. But all of creation, including man, was oriented toward the seventh day. The seventh day in which all of creation would be brought into communion with God. On the sixth day, in verse 28, we read, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed which is upon the face of all the earth. And every tree which has seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And every beast of the earth and every bird of the air and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw that everything that He made and behold, it was very good. God gave man dominion over creation. He created a unity within creation. Within creation, there was to be a shared life. That life was the life of God, given to creation and having come to fulfillment in the creation of man. Adam's job in creation was to take that gift given to him, that life of God, and have dominion over creation, ordering it properly so that it could be ordered back to God Himself. To receive the gift and realize that our entire life is dependent upon God. And when your entire life is dependent upon another, then you live your life for that person. 
the original unity of creation was based upon that gift which God gave to Adam in the dominion which he exercised over creation, properly ordering it and having a shared common life. The reason why when Adam fell, all of creation fell with him is because he was in that place to direct it, to order it, and to offer that life back to God. When he was removed from that position, all of the order that was supposed to be in creation, the unity of creation, of God's life, of the divinization of creation, was also removed. All of creation became, in a sense, dislocated when Adam fell. Why is this important? Because in that, we discover the beginning, the revelation of God's plan of salvation for mankind, of communion with God in and through the created order. Adam failed in his duty, and all of creation fell with him. That is the problem which Jesus Christ comes to solve. To restore the original unity of creation. To restore the church in which the life of God is found. Ephesians chapter 4, which we mentioned last time, and which I will use again tonight. Verse 11. And his gifts were that some should be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipment of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Ah, That unity of the faith, which is the original unity given to creation. To mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the cunning of men, by their craftiness and deceitful wiles. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, and this is what I skipped this verse last time, and I want to focus upon this, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by every joint with which it is supplied, when each part is working properly, makes bodily growth and upbuilds itself in love. It upbuilds itself in love. And the love that St. Paul is speaking of is the love of God the gift of the Holy Spirit, the life of God dwelling in the church. That life of God is like the blood flowing through the body of Christ, which causes that unity among men to be restored. And in the Holy Spirit, we are to grow up as a body, as a unity, into the image and likeness of the Son of God Himself. In the Catechism, paragraph 5 21. Christ enables us to live in Him all that He Himself lived, and He lives it in us. By His incarnation, He, the Son of God, has in a certain way united Himself with each man. We are called only to become one with Him. That's salvation. We are called only to become one with Him. He enables us as members of His body to share in what He lived for us in His flesh as our model. We must continue to accomplish in ourselves the stages of Jesus' life. 
and His mysteries, and often to beg Him to perfect and realize them in us and in His whole church. For it is the plan of the Son of God to make us and the whole church partake in His mysteries and extend them in us and His whole church. This is His plan for fulfilling His mysteries in us. And paragraph 738. Thus the church's mission is not, this is fundamental, is not in addition to that of Christ and the Holy Spirit, but it is its sacrament. In her whole being and in all her members, the church is sent to announce, bear witness, make present, and spread the mystery of the communion of the Holy Trinity. And here the Catechism quotes St. Cyril of Alexandria. All of us who have received one and the same Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, are in a sense blended together with one another and with God. For if Christ together with the Father's and His own Spirit comes to dwell in each of us, though we are many, still the Spirit is one and undivided. He binds together the spirits of each and every one of us and makes all appear as one in Him. For just as the power of Christ's sacred flesh unites those in whom it dwells into one body, I think that in the same way, the one and undivided Spirit of God who dwells in all leads all into a spiritual unity. Okay? Absolutely fundamental because the first mark of the church that we profess in the creed is that the church is one. It is not divided. The church is one in Jesus Christ. It is not an addition to His plan. It is part of that original plan. Pope Leo XIII said, On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit gives Himself in view, not of beginning to dwell among the saints, but of bathing them in His profusion. Not of inaugurating, but of perfecting His gifts. Not of making a new work, but increasing His largesse. In other words, that gift of the church, of that original unity within creation, given to Adam and Eve, is then brought to its fullness in the gift of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. Okay, And each one of you mentioned a different moment. It must have been on Pentecost, or it must have been at the moment of the crucifixion, or it must have been when he named uh, Peter as, as the foundation stone of his church. All of these things are true in a certain sense as they are further revelations of that same mystery which began in the beginning. That mystery is the gift of God's life and His love for us. And that life and His love for us has now come to the fullness in His revelation of the church. I said that the first mark of the church is that it is one. We say it is also it is holy. It is Catholic. And it is apostolic. The Catechism in paragraph 795 says, Christ and His church thus together make up the whole Christ. Get this in your heads. Christ and His church make up the whole Christ. Christ is the head. His body is the church. Together, they make up one thing. And we cannot divide Christ. We cannot divide His church. St. Augustine says, Let us rejoice then and give thanks that we have become not only Christians, but we have become Christ Himself. Do you understand and grasp, brethren, God's grace towards us? Marvel and rejoice. 
we have become Christ. For if He is the head and we are the members, He and we together are the whole man. The fullness of Christ then is the head and the members. He goes on. This is the whole Christ, head and body, one formed from many. Whether the head or the members speak, it is Christ who speaks. He speaks in His role as head and in His role as body. What does this mean? The two will become one flesh. This is a great mystery and I apply it to Christ in the church. St. Irenaeus goes further. Indeed, it is to the church herself that the gift of God has been entrusted. The gift of God? The life of God? huh? The Holy Spirit. That blood flowing through the veins of the body of Christ. It is to her that communion with Christ has been deposited. That is to say, the Holy Spirit, the pledge of incorruptibility, the strengthening of our faith in the ladder of our ascent to God. For where the church is, there also is God's Spirit. Huh? Where you find the church, you also find God's Spirit. Where God's Spirit is, there is also the church and every grace. You cannot divide the gift of God. You cannot divide Jesus Christ. You cannot divide the Holy Spirit from the church. Where there is the church, there is Jesus Christ. Where there is Jesus Christ, there is the church. Because where there is Jesus Christ, there is His body. This is a vital principle. It's got a fancy title. The co-extensivity of the church and Christ. The co-extensivity of the church and Christ. Where there is church, there is also Christ. Where there is Christ, there is also the church. Christ is one, and you cannot divide Him. The second mark of the church, which is going to bring us really to the heart of the matter of our subject, is that the church is holy. We say the church is one. We say that the church is holy. And you might say to yourself, now how is that possible? You profess it every single time you go to church and you say the creed. One holy Catholic and apostolic church. Sometimes it's good to slow down when we're saying the creed and really think about what we're saying. Are you a member of the church? Yeah? Are you a sinner? Yeah? No, I don't need to hear confessions. It's okay. I'm only a deacon. I can hear your confession, but I can't do anything about it. The church is holy because the church is the body of Christ. The church is holy because Christ is holy. Which brings us to the next question, which is, are you really a member of the church if you're a sinner? Because wouldn't that, by that very fact, make Christ also a sinner? Cardinal Journet says, the church separates in us the good from the evil. She retains the good and leaves the evil behind. The church separates in us the good from the evil. Maybe that's not even the best way of looking at it, really. Because I think oftentimes we separate in us what belongs to Christ in the church and what doesn't. 
Sin has no place in the church. Sin has no place in Christ. Quoting Paul VI in his Credo of the People of God says, The church is therefore holy, though having sinners in her midst, because she herself has no other life but the life of grace. If they live in her, members are sanctified. If they move away from her life, they fall into sins and disorders that prevent the radiation of her sanctity. That in you which is holy is Catholic. That in you which is not holy is to be cast off, cut off, and burned in the fire. It is not part of the church. Journet goes on in the earlier quote, There are sinners in the church, but they do not bring their sins inside her. The boundaries of the church Divide their heart. The principle of coextensivity of Christ and His church. Just as in Christ there is both flesh and spirit, so within the church there is also what is visible and what is invisible. You can touch me. You can touch the church. But can you perceive the Holy Spirit in me? I think of the story of Nicodemus that we read last time. Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night and says, We know who you are, for no one can do these signs unless he is sent from God. And Jesus says, No, you don't, Nicodemus. You do not know who I am. For Nicodemus and the Pharisees had perceived a teacher, a miracle worker, but they had not perceived the eternal Word of God. They had perceived the man, but they had not perceived God in the man. Similarly with the church, there are different elements of the church. That which is physical, that which is material, that which you can see. A bishop, an ecumenical council, the faithful gathered together in liturgy. You can touch the church. But can you touch the gift which makes the church the church? And the answer is no. I want to say one last thing. I missed a note. I've got to say it about the body of Christ, about the church, and about sinners that I think might be helpful. St. Paul just has a beautiful image of the church as the body of Christ. Hands and feet and eyes and ears. All of, all of us participate in our own way. We manifest the incarnation of Christ on earth. When we sin... We cut ourselves off. We damage that relationship with Christ and the church. We become, my favorite analogy is the hangnail on the body of Christ. Huh? It's dying. In fact, it kind of hurts the body. It's dying. When you sin, you damage the veins and take, like taking a hatchet and whacking your arm with it. Blood might still be flowing to your hand, but it's not flowing as well. And when you whack it enough times with that hatchet, your hand dies and it's no longer part of your body. The similar thing happens with sin in the church, in each one of our lives. And don't go Catholics that, well, only mortal sin really cuts us off and therefore... I'll just go haywire with venial sin. <laughs> no. Sin 
cuts you off from the body of Christ. It damages that relationship. Yes, some sins more than others, but all sins begin to stop that flow of blood which keeps you alive in the church. And to the extent that that blood of the Holy Spirit is not flowing in you, you are dying. You are, say, living apart from Christ. And life apart from Christ has one end, and that is eternal death. Does that make sense? Okay. Grace alone saves you. The life of God alone saves you. Lumen Gentium, Vatican II, says the sole church of Christ, which in the creed we profess to be one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic, subsists in the Catholic Church. The one church of Christ subsists in the Catholic Church. In other words, the body of Christ, the church, is the Catholic Church. Nevertheless, Many elements, and don't go, I want you to listen to me on this. Nevertheless, many elements of sanctification, of what? Of the life of God and the truth are found outside her visible confines. Outside of her visible confines. Be careful. Do not divide Christ. Do not divide the gift of the Holy Spirit. Do not divide the church. Many elements of sanctification are found outside of her visible confines. The church does not teach that salvation is found outside of the church. There are two mutually extensive elements to the church. That which appeared to Nicodemus. And that which Nicodemus was really looking at and didn't realize. The church and the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ and His eternal life. Cardinal Journet, and this is a lengthy quote. If no one, at whatever time and place in which he lives, is saved without Christ, and if to be in Christ is to form his body, No one is saved without belonging in some way to the church. The encounter, public or hidden, of the soul with the church is inevitable. It happens from the dawn of the life of reason, and even earlier for baptized infants. From the first moment when God, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, begins to work on the soul through His truth and His love, it is instructed, the soul, to accept or refuse this entry of God into it. And at the same time, to accept or refuse its membership in the church. The step that makes the unbaptized soul cross secretly over the threshold of the church is the act of adhering by faith to the revealed message. The act which makes the soul secretly cross over the threshold of the church when it begins to accept the revealed message. 
And a fundamental point that you have to keep in mind when understanding the principle of outside the church there is no salvation is that revelation comes to each one of us according to our capacity to receive it, according to our state in life. It came to the Jews by the revealed law of Moses. It came to the pagans by the gift of the natural law which they found in their heart. It came to the Christians in the fullness of that revelation of Jesus Christ. And it comes to our Protestant brothers and sisters, as Cardinal Journet says, not in its fullness, in part, but that part is still the revelation of God Himself. And that revelation can never be separated from Jesus Christ, and that revelation can never be separated from His church. The act that makes one step over the threshold of the church is not as we might have expected. The explicit place of baptism in the church, which is essential and necessary. It has to do with the gift of God's grace. We are saved by grace alone, which leads us to faith, which in turn leads us to the baptismal font. Cardinal Journet says, if they consent to the prevenient motions, prevenient motions, a theologically technical term for, to the first graces, the first gift of God by which he calls man to himself, imperceptibly, invisibly, that part of the church which is not touched by man, which is not able to be perceived, most oftentimes according to the basic principles of right and wrong, the natural law placed in the heart of each one of us. If they consent to the prevenient motions, the prevenient graces, they can have true faith and belong initially, but already salutarily, to the true church. I will say that again because it's absolutely fundamental if they consent to the prevenient motions, they, a non-Catholic, can have true faith and belong, in other words, cease to be a non-Catholic, and belong initially, but already salutarily, to the true church. These, I will add, non-Catholics, will still belong corporally, that is, in a manner above all, exterior and visible to an aberrant religion. They will not be visibly members of the church. You will not be able to look at them and say, that is a Catholic. That is a member of the body of Christ. But they will already belong spiritually, that is, in a manner above all, interior and invisible to the mysterious and visible church. To the extent that somebody is sanctified, they are sanctified as a Catholic. To the extent that somebody is saved, they are saved as a Catholic. There is no salvation outside of Christ, and therefore there is no salvation outside of His church. If somebody is to be saved, they can 
only be saved as a Catholic. But you may not be able to perceive their membership in the church. I'll read you that last sentence of Jornig, Just If you said, what is he talking about? I'll just read it to you again. <laughs> These non-Catholics, members of an aberrant religion, in this case he was using the, the question of Hindus and Buddhists, Muslims and so forth. But we can say this also for all of those who are not explicitly members of the church. These will still, those who have accepted the prevenient motions of grace, huh? those who are living according to the gift of God, because they have the life of God in them, even if it is the beginnings, the prevenient motions of God, that gift is the life of God. And there is to be found among men no life of God but the life of Jesus Christ. And that life of God is revealed to us, is given to us in the church and in the church alone. The church is the body of Christ, as St. Paul says. Where there is Christ, there is also the church. These, though they belong exterior and in a visible manner to an aberrant religion, religious formation, they will already belong spiritually, that is, in a manner, above all, interior and invisible, to the mysterious and visible church. The church takes them in and begins their movement towards full participation in the body of Christ. So I ask you a question. Can someone be baptized validly? Can someone be baptized outside of the Catholic Church? Does the Catholic Church recognize baptism outside of herself? The principle of coextensivity of the Church of Christ. Where there is Christ, there is the Catholic Church. Where there is the Catholic Church, there is Jesus Christ. Can someone be baptized into Jesus Christ apart from the Catholic Church? Hmm. What is the answer? To the extent that the baptism is a baptism into Jesus Christ, it is a Catholic baptism. And that's why it is considered to be a valid baptism. But it is a baptism of the Catholic Church existing, yes, invisibly, not apparently to us, but existing apparently outside of the visible confines of the church, but nevertheless 100% Catholic. What is necessary for a baptism outside, so-called, outside of the Catholic church to be so-called valid? You must baptize, yes, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And the minister of baptism must what? Intend to do what the church does. Because that intention inserts him into the very life of the church itself. And you ask me, I scratched my head over this one for a number of years. 
how is it possible that someone that does not believe what we believe about baptism, how could they intend to do what the church does? A Baptist minister does not accept the exact same thing that we believe about baptism. Well, I should say that a different way. They don't believe everything we believe about baptism. But, the church does not say that the minister of the sacrament must have full 100% knowledge of the mystery of baptism, for in that case, 99% of Catholic baptisms would also be invalid based upon the lack of knowledge of the minister. The intent cannot be contrary to do what the church does. When a Baptist minister baptizes validly, what he intends, the church also intends, but the church just intends a whole lot more. His intention is not contrary, and therefore, the baptism is a Catholic baptism. And the church embraces that person into her life. A Jehovah's Witness, on the other hand, or a Mormon, on the other hand, rejects the concept of God which we hold. They hold a contrary concept. And therefore, their baptism is not accepted by the church because their intention is at odds with the intention of the church. They don't accept the life of the Trinity. They have a corrupted notion of God Himself. Cardinal Journet says about those who are baptized apparently outside of the church, huh? Protestant baptism. They can be baptized validly. Then they will belong to the true church as truly as the children she baptizes in her own bosom. There is no salvation outside of Christ. There is no salvation outside of the church inasmuch as a baptism is for salvation. It is a baptism of the church. They will then belong to the true church as truly as the children she baptizes in her bosom. The problem then becomes with their upbringing most of the time. At some point in the life of reason, they reject an aspect of revealed truth huh? and begin a life a life which is struggling to stay alive in the body of Christ. And in as much as they are alive, the church recognizes them as a member of her own. I want to conclude with just a couple of quotations from Cardinal Journet. One of them, the one I already read, and I'll read it to you again. But first, his own conclusion. And so the church, the church confided to Peter, is at the same time more pure and more vast than we know. More pure since she is, not certainly without sinners, but without sin. And the faults of her members do not sully her. More vast because around her are assembled all in the world who are saved. She knows that from the beginning of space and time there are attached to her by desire, in a manner initial and latent, Millions of people whom invincible ignorance has impeded from knowing her, but who have not refused in the midst of the errors in which they live the grace of the living faith, 
that the God who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth offers them in the secret of their heart. She herself does not know them by name, but she senses all around her their anonymous presence. And sometimes in the silence of her prayer, she hears mounting in the night the confused cadence of their march. The necessity of membership in Christ and in His church, as Scripture has revealed, is a unique and simple mystery, but so profound that we can know it only by a series of complementary propositions, compelling the mind of the believer to go beyond into the simple glance of faith. For those who do not advance so far, who separate the church and the body of Christ, membership in the church and membership in Christ, or still more, who consider the church according to the pattern of purely human societies, the axiom, no salvation outside the church, immediately loses its light. It can then be only seen as a slogan seized by fanatics of both extremes in order to make it rigid or to renounce it altogether. To those who find themselves apparently outside of the church, to those of the many various Protestant traditions and communities, I ask you what you are protesting. Protesting will not save you. Only Christ saves. If you are surprised that within the Catholic Church you find a voice which speaks without error, do not be surprised, for Christ is infallible. If you are offended that within the church you find the sinless virgin and the holy saints, do not be surprised, because Christ became like us in all things except sin. If you are surprised that within the church you find the forgiveness of sins, rejoice, for Christ has signed our absolution with His life-giving blood. Outside of Christ, there is no salvation. Only inside the church will you find eternal life. Thank you. We will take our normal break. Okay, questions. Before I forget, James asked a question last week about active and passive justification in sacred scripture. I just want to point this out to you that oftentimes theological distinctions come about because of theological errors. And so the church then comes back and says, look, you've got to understand this thing and maybe a little bit, we've got to break it down a little bit to understand it. And so even though passive and active justification, maybe you can point to this verse or that verse, the Catholic Church does not make that distinction except for theological purposes of explaining herself more fully. Okay? For us, justification, huh? yes, it can be looked at from the matter of God justifying us or from the passive perspectives, us being justified, which means God making us justified. Huh? That's fundamental. And the point I was making last week was that from Luther's perspective, was simply to look at it from the active perspective of God declaring the person justified. Right? For us, active is declaring and making. And passive is being made. Huh? Being made justified. Having that life of God within us. Luther's problem was he only saw that aspect of the declaration. Right? The, the courtroom scenario. 
Justification for us with God is not according to a courtroom. Thank you very much. God loves us and He wants our salvation. Okay? And so, you want something. What does the Scripture say about justification? We went through all the, the verses in the first night. Simply, it is the life of God dwelling in the soul. It is the same as sanctification. It is the same as salvation. Okay? Okay, I'll, I'm coming around to everybody, but first, uh, we had a question from John in Arlington, Virginia, online. He said, why was Father Feeney excommunicated prior to his reconciliation for presenting the same truth that you have stated tonight? Yeah, so Father Feeney was a, a priest who was making, I, I honestly, I should have reviewed Father Feeney's situation before I got up here tonight. I didn't have the time, but... Um, basically, for he got hold of this text of no salvation outside the church, and he really got into it, and he made a ton of converts. A lot of young people converted through Father Feeney's work uh, because he said, look, you better convert. You better become a Catholic. Father Feeney, as I understand it, now John writing may have a better understanding, or other people may tonight have a better understanding. I haven't looked at the issue in a couple of years, but I, as I understand it, um, and I, I'm open to correction, please email me and we'll correct it on the website. Father Feeney got himself into trouble by rejecting uh, the possibility of baptism by desire, which is the entire point I was making tonight, not just the title of my talk, but what that text means. Huh? That when man begins to desire God, he never does that on his own. Never. God is working there on his soul. Prevenient grace. And that already begins to justify the person. Okay? Beginning, inklings of that life of God within the soul by which man is saved. In fact, I quoted from a lady tonight who's, who's preparing to enter the church um, this Easter. She's been coming regularly. Great quotation, which I didn't read to you from Lumen Gentium, saying, Catechumens who, moved by the Holy Spirit, desire with an explicit intention to be incorporated into the church, but or, and are by that very intention joined to her. With love and solicitude, Mother Church already embraces them as her own. If they die in that state, they're given a Catholic burial. Huh? They're considered to be already participating in the life of the church. It's only waiting now for the fulfillment of that. And I'll read from you the quotation which I believe is in reference to Father Feeney's situation that was sent to the Archbishop of Boston dated August 8, 1949. In order for a person to obtain eternal salvation, it is not always required that he be visibly incorporated in the church as a member, but the minimum required is that he adhere to her by intention and desire. Okay, and it goes so far as to say, look, even that gift of God, uh, somebody asked me about the Hindu, saying, how is it possible? Saying, they have natural law within them as a gift of God. And it is to the extent that they begin to follow that, they begin to follow the grace of God. Like a mouse following the, the little trail, right? But always towards Catholic fullness of the revelation of the Catholic Church in their life. Always towards that. And that's where people do eventually get into a problem in their life when God is calling them revealing them to them the mysteries of the faith, and they just don't respond. And even there, you may have situations of invincible ignorance where they're doing the best they can with what God has given them. We hand them into the mercy of God then. I've got to finish reading this quote. 
But the minimum requires you to adhere by intention and desire. It is not always necessary, nevertheless, that this intention be explicit, as it is with catechumens. While a person is in invincible ignorance, God accepts even his implicit intention, so-called because it is included in the good disposition of the soul by which the man desires to render his will conform to that of God. Now, this is not to say that everyone who's a nice guy is going to be saved. I'm not saying that. But that's for God to judge. But, for us tonight, the most important thing I need you to go away with is that that person is saved as a Catholic. Protestantism, protesting, saves no one. Hinduism saves no one. Only Jesus Christ can save. And the whole Christ, including the church. Regarding baptism desire and that sort of thing I, I remember from way back when that if you're in a position of car wreck or something like that and somebody's dying anybody can baptize somebody yeah and it's the exact same situation among the Protestant communities and so forth they intend to do what the church does but that person is baptized not as a aberrant religion as Jornet was talking about baptized if they're validly baptized if the church recognizes their baptism it's a baptism of the church Apparently existing outside her, to our eyes, but truly Catholic. Yes, you can. You're asking. Absolutely, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Uh, could you clear up something here about the? Uh, it appears that somebody like Hindus or maybe Muslims or some other uh, or maybe even pagans could be saved. But on the other hand, you mentioned that some of these Protestant sects, like was it Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, Good, I'm glad you, yeah, cannot, the, even though they do. Yeah. Have let me make this baptism. distinction very clear because somebody else asked me this. What I, the difference I was talking about was that we do not recognize Mormon baptism. I wasn't saying that a so-called Mormon could not be saved, right? I wouldn't say they were being saved as a Mormon, right? Mormonism saves nobody. Hindus just don't have Christian baptism. They don't even try for a Christian baptism. So, so that was the difference I, w I was making. Does that answer your question? I want to make sure I answer it because it wasn't clear before. So... The point I was making earlier was that Mormon baptism is not recognized by the church because it is contrary to her intention. In other words, Mormon baptism does nothing. In other words, it's not a Christian baptism. It doesn't baptize you into Christ because it is contrary to the intention of the church. They don't accept the life of the Holy Trinity. And our entrance in baptism, according to the intention of the church, is entrance into the Trinity, the life of God. Okay? Deacon, as a, as a follow-up to that, I, I went to a Mormon baptism. Okay. I was very intent on listening to the words that they used, and they actually baptized in a Trinitarian form. Yes. Granted, their understanding of God is wrong. Yeah, you can use a, any formula you want, but that's why the church says it's not enough just to say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You must intend to do what the church does. Their understanding of Father, and Son, and Holy Spirit is not only weak, it's not only just lacking... It's actually positively false. And that's the difference. Their intention is to do something contrary to what the church does. Could that person be saved through baptism by desire? And I'd say yes. But not according to that baptism. That baptism is not going to do anything for that person. Contrary to a baptism among the Protestant communities, huh? That baptism, so long as the church recognizes it, can be salvific, which is Jornet's point. 
the church accepts them just as she accepts those she baptizes herself. Last time you left us with a question, and I hope I phrase it correctly, it was, when did the church begin, mm -hmm. or when was it established? Several answers were proffered, one being when Christ said to Peter, Peter Matthew upon this rock, yes. I will build my church. When you said no, that was not correct, please tell us, yes. what is the answer? Yeah. State the question so, correctly. Let me go and use Keats. I was, you know, if you don't ever stay around after the Institute's done, trust me, we have a lot of fun. And Keats' point was a very good one. He says, well, couldn't you say both and? And yes, I tend to be slightly dramatic in my answers. So yes, both and. And this is the point of Pope Leo XIII, that on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit gives himself in view, not of beginning to dwell among the saints, but of bathing them in his profusion, not of inaugurating, but of perfecting his gifts, not of making a new work, but of increasing his largesse. Vatican II says the same thing, saying that the church was increasing in figure in the beginning, like in the beginning already there, because why? The church is the revelation of the unity of men unified in God in the divine life. And that was God's plan in the beginning. And that's what broke down when Adam was removed from that, which, by the way, and I must say this, that is why within the church we find her primary mission being the sanctification, the making holy of creation. That was Adam's job in the beginning to receive that gift which God had given to him, to share it, to cultivate, huh? to make grow the created order, to divinize it as the priest of creation. God literally took him. Who has dominion? A king has dominion, right? God is the king of the universe. That is the love which God has for us, that he places us in his shoes, that we may, in his place, to participate in who and what he is, divinized creation. And Adam refused the gift which God had given him. And so Christ came to restore that gift. And that is why within the church, sanctification of creation takes place. Not only of people, but of the created order, of wine, of water, of bread, of oil, and so forth. The church's job is divinization, of making everything to share in the life of God until God, as St. Paul says, is all in all. And it's your job too, not just the priests. Everyone's job. We do have right. another okay. uh, question from Harold Gomez in Maryland who said a Christian of another denomination was criticizing the Roman Catholic Church because of the abuse crisis. How can I explain how sinful Catholics don't make the church sinful? You know, if you can spend two nights in a row with them, about two hours, going through these texts of St. Paul to make the person realize the unity of the church and of Christ, huh? Most likely this person was a Protestant going after the church saying, the scandal, this is the problem. The scandal of the sins of the faithful is the biggest obstacle to people coming into the church. How do you make them understand that when someone sins, to say, look, the church and Christ are one. And Christ is sinless. And if they can accept that Christ is sinless, then they must also accept that the church is sinless. And then we can begin to understand that God works on the soul. Not in an instant, but according to a lifetime. Drawing the person from exile 
to salvation. Do we have time for one last question? Okay, break? one last question. Okay. It better be good. <laughs> I like it. Well, I like this question. Okay. <laughs> okay, so Jesus says uh, something like this. Uh, the Father does not desire that even one of these the little of the ones yeah. be, be lost. And so my question is, given that, is anyone not given prevenient mm. grace? That's it's a just, great... just a matter of responding to yeah, it. That's a, that is a great question. And I wish I had the quotation out here in front of me uh, from St. Thomas Aquinas. But the answer is no. That everyone, everyone is given the opportunity for salvation according to their state in life. So, the person who is off in sub-Sahara Africa in 33 AD, what do you do with that person? To the extent that they're responding to the gift which God has given them, according to natural law, and then according to the graces which follow, that person can be saved and as the church teaches, God will always supply for their lack, will always send them a preacher according to their capacity. God desires the salvation of all. He knocks upon the door of every single heart and calls them to full communion in the Catholic Church. To the extent that they open that door, they open the door of the Catholic Church. To the extent that they are saved, they are saved as a Catholic. Thank you all for coming. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540 635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.